All right, thank you. Good afternoon, welcome everybody. Um, it's nice to see names appearing on the screen, but it's uh, a little bit sad that we're not doing it face-to-face. -face. I'm very happy, I'm delighted to have the, uh, uh, the, the honor to present Haggai uh, this afternoon, uh, but I can only wish we'd had the chance to sit together for lunch before and maybe tea afterwards, Haggai. So keep that promise for me uh, for later. Um, a speaker, Professor Haggai Ram, is a historian of the Middle East at Ben-Gurion University in the Negev uh, in Israel. His area of research, areas of research, uh, include the, the social and cultural histories of Iran and the Levant. And among his publications uh, are the books, Myth and Mobilization in Revolutionary Iran, Reading Iran in Israel came out in Hebrew in uh, 2006, and uh, Iranophobia, the logic of an Israeli obsession, came out with Stanford University Press in uh, 2009. And uh, his latest book, which is the topic of the uh, talk today, is Intoxicating Zion, a social history of hashish in mandatory Palestine and Israel. And the title of his talk today is the social life of hashish in mandatory Palestine and Israel, a global history. Haggai, thank you so much for joining this seminar. Thank you, Yaakov, for this very generous introduction. And, and my, uh, my, uh, the, the, the only thing which is a bit uh, regretful is that I couldn't make it, but thank God there is uh, Zoom, although I'm sure that most of us who've been teaching and using it in the past two years have grown quite tired of it but I'll try to make uh, the best of it. I'm, I'm going to share a uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation. Please let me, is, is, are you seeing it? Do you see it? Yes, working. Fantastic. Um, okay, so my, can you hear me well? So everything is set, fantastic. Okay, the social life of cannabis or hashish in Palestine, Israel, a global history. So um, my presentation here is based, as Yaakov just mentioned, is based on my book, Intoxicating Zion, Social History uh, of Hashish in Mandatory Palestine and Israel, which was published earlier this year with uh, Stanford University Press. The, 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 the overall studies concerned with the previously untold social history of hashish in Palestine, Israel, the drug which is made from the cannabis resin. And my story begins in the 1920s, the mandatory period in Palestine and in the Levant in general, which coincided with the uh, criminalization of cannabis and other drugs in the international arena. And the story ends in 1967, specifically with the 1967 June War, which together with other local and global trends and circumstances, dramatically transformed patterns of hashish policy and drug culture in the Levant region for years to come. It is a transnational, perhaps even global study that examines the transition from mandatory Palestine to the state of Israel in the 1950s and the 1960s, 
through the perspective of hashish, cannabis, as an illicit commodity that is smuggled across borders, that is traded, consumed, regulated, and endlessly debated, and as a screen on which human beings project their class, ethnic, come, racial, and gendered desires and anxiety. So, just to give a short introduction, starting in the 1990s, trained historians began to forge what historian Paul Gutenberg termed the new drug history. So until that point in time, academic interest in criminalized drugs was largely limited to those in the biomedical or legal criminological fields. So when historians began to demonstrate an interest in the subject, they mobilized the tools of their profession. They delved into previously untapped archives and analyzed a wide array of sources using cross-disciplinary cultural and sociolo sociological methods in order to understand such things as the modern origins of a variety of intoxicants that have rich and complex social, cultural, economic, and political histories. In the process, they have shed light on an immense and fascinating field of study that includes new understandings of the political and cultural context within which substances became drugs, the underworld of users and traffickers, the complex role of race, gender, and class in the construction of addiction, and the place of colonialism and nation-building projects in dispersing drug use and enforcing drug restrictions. Historical research on these topics has offered exciting observations about a variety of societies in the Americas, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, and perhaps more excitingly, at least to my mind, uh, these studies also demonstrate the links between criminalized drugs and broader political, social, and economic histories. So as of late, there has been, I would say, a trickle of monographs, articles, and dissertations on the history of drugs in the pre-modern, early modern, and modern Middle East, specifically Egypt, Morocco, the Ottoman Empire and Turkey, Lebanon, and uh, Iran. With regard to Palestine, Israel, specifically, no historical study of drugs in Palestine has ever been undertaken, and no academic attention has been paid to the links between criminalized drugs and broader historical issues in the state of Israel from its establishment until the present. Intoxicating Zion is the first study that addresses these lacuna, and it focuses on cannabis, which was and remains the main criminalized mind-altering substance that circulated in the Levant and the region's most popular recreational drug. So in my talk now, I would like to discuss three interrelated 
aspects of the social history of hashish in mandatory Palestine and the state of Israel. The first is hashish commodity chains and the movement of hashish traffickers across the Levant region, including Palestine. The second is the evolution of hashish culture in mandatory Palestine. And the third is the attitude of Jews in pre and post 1948 uh, periods to cannabis and cannabis intoxication. In the process, what I hope would come uh, through is the porous nature of the Levant states and the interdependence between them, not only in matters relating to Levantine culture and political horizons, which have been sufficiently addressed in previous scholarship, but also in matters pertaining to criminal activity and leisure uh, culture. So let us begin. Contrary to uh, 19th and 20th century Orientalist discourses, hashish consumption in late Ottoman Palestine appears to have been very negligible. It is indeed likely that hashish was consumed in Palestine in moderation, in much of the same way that opium was used in 19th century England without any fatal loss of control, as it were. This, however, began to change with the establishment of unprecedented global controls over opiates before and during the interwar years and over cannabis in the 1925 League of Nations Second Opium Convention. So before the emergence of these incipient drug, drug control regimes, Greece was the main supply source of Egypt, of hashish to Egypt, Egypt being uh, one of the, having one of the longest histories with hashish in the Arab Middle East, a history that dates back to the Middle Ages. Indeed, as Philip Robbins suggests, and here I quote, I hope um, uh, verbatim, with a mix of affection and mild contempt, to this day, Egyptians are widely referred to as the hashishim, that is hashish users, across the rest of the Arab world in recognition of their fondness for their drug. At any rate, without supplies from Greece, Egyptians turned for the first time to hashish supplies from Lebanon and Syria. As a result, Palestine emerged as a new junction and a transit route in the Levant hashish trade that extended between Lebanon in the north and Egypt in the south. In short, Palestine's geographical position ensured that vast quantities of illicit hashish supplies would be smuggled across its territory and route to Egypt. How should I proceed from here? Okay. Um, according to Arjun Apudurai, Apadurai, in his classic, The Social Life of Things, and I quote, the diversion of commodities from specific 
from specified paths is always a sign of creativity or crisis, whether of static or economic. So arguably, the diversion of hashish smuggling routes from Egypt to Greece, sorry, for, uh, the, 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 the diversion of hashish smuggling routes to Egypt from Greece to the Levant was a sign of crisis for the British in Palestine and a sign of creativity for hashish traffickers. Lacking the infrastructural ability, the economic capacity, and sometimes the willpower to enforce the ban on the drug trade, border crossing illicit hashish flows demonstrated to the British the porous and perforated nature of the mandate state's border. And by extension, they also questioned the very legitimacy of these states. Let me just give you one example. Claude Scudamore Jarvis, a British major who served in the English army in Egypt and Palestine, conveyed this sentiment most succinctly um, as such, as, as, as follows. He complaining about the menace of hashish traffickers in the Levant region, he mused, hashish smuggling is rather like an attempt to dam a stream with a clay barrier. Directly you have plugged up one hole, the water comes through in another place. On the other hand, as I mentioned, the diversion of smuggling routes to the Levant compelled, or I would even say inspired hashish traffickers to come up with the most creative and ingenious rouses and subterfuges in order to transport their cargoes safely from Lebanon to Egypt safely. Now, it should be remembered that the interwar period presented these hashish traffickers with serious challenges. Firstly, incipient international and local control efforts had criminalized them, but perhaps even most impo more importantly, uh, as people who had previously, that is in the late Ottoman period, crossed territories in relative ease, the creation of the Levant mandate states with customs and police outposts created along these states' borders restricted their movement and they could no longer expect their now illicit cargoes to go undetected. Um, these inespecious circumstances required our traffickers, and I'm sorry, I should have said that before because when I say traffickers, uh, I mean ordinary Palestinians, uh, Arabs from adjacent countries, international gangs from different countries in Europe and the Middle East, British soldiers stationed in Palestine and Egypt, and significantly also Zionist paramilitary organizations that fought the British. So these circumstances of uh, erecting borders in the Levant states uh, required all of these people uh, to come up with a variety of ploys and deceptions to transport their cargoes safely. So smugglers uh, concealed hashish in shoes with thick hollow soles and heels, uh, inside wheels, in hollow uh, slab of chocolate, uh, in, on the bodies of men falsely uh, dressed as monks and priests, um, in spare wheels and secret compartments built in automobiles, buses, lorries, and trains, uh, in false bottom of suitcases, in musical instruments, and the list 
uh, goes on and on and on and on. But significantly, in these ploys, uh, hashish smugglers took advantage and were also empowered by what historian Paul Nepper described in the context of criminal activity in interwar Europe as world shrinking technologies or speed technologies, part of the long 19th centuries. Our smugglers used cars, ships, and even airplanes to uh, ferry their illicit merchandise across borders. Uh, but significantly, uh, these, uh, uh, these were employed alongside more traditional transportation means, such as camels and other beasts of burden. Smugglers, uh, for instance, would glue hashish uh, cylinders underneath the hair of camel's humps, or alternately, and please don't try this at home, they would force these hashish cylinders down their throats. Once crossing the border into Egypt, the unfortunate beasts would then be slaughtered and the valuable cargo recovered. Another illuminating uh, example of such ploys is transmitted in the 1994 novella Majma' al-Asrar, Bundle of Secrets by the celebrated uh, Lebanese novelist, playwright and critic Elias Khoury. One of the novella's protagonists is a certain Hana al-Salman, a convict in a Beirut prison in the 1940s, who's awaiting his verdict, execution by hanging for the killing of two prostitutes. Hannah listens attentively uh, to stories disclosed to him by Ahmad and Munir, his two cellmates. He's fascinated by their tales about the exploits of a certain Sami al-Khuri, not to be confused, of course, with the author, Elias Khuri, who is described in novella, and I quote, is one of the most dangerous smugglers in the world of the drugs, AKA the boss, Mu'allim. The following cabbage story, which illustrates the boss's ingenuity and his quote, amazing ability to escape police networks that pursued him, impressed Hannah the most and steered up his emotions. And the story goes like this. The boss instructed us, that is, Ahmad and Munir to saw cabbage. We thought he lost his mind. He said, obtain a plot and land and saw cabbage. We said, boss, we came here to eat bread. We are not farmers. He said, saw cabbages and the rest is on me. So we saw, you know, when the cabbage starts growing, they explained to, uh, to Hannah al-Salman, when the cabbage starts growing, it's open. We kept watering the cabbage, looking around us, not understanding. We were instructed to see to it that the cabbage would open. One moonless night, the boss arrived with 10 young men equipped with magnum revolvers and 10 trucks loaded with hashish. We took the hashish and planted it inside the open cabbages. We worked all night. The Rais, Sami, insisted on rolling up his sleeves. He, this wasn't a smuggling operation for him. It was a hobby. He planted hashish in between the cabbage leaves as though he were a physician given, giving medicine to a patient. After 10 days, which lasted like 100 years, 
the cabbage leaves had shut, covering the hashish and swallowing it up. I swear to Allah. After that, we collected the cabbage and sent it in cargo planes to Egypt under the pretense of a cabbage export deal. So, to be clear, the novella is primarily a work of fiction. However, like most fictional work, it, it also echoes a credible historical reality and demonstrates the extent to which the creation of the Levant hashish trade, stretching from Lebanon to Egypt with Palestine in between, provided a bonanza for many hashish tra traffickers, Lebanese and many others as well. The credibility of this tale is reinforced by the fact that Sami al-Khuri was indeed a real Lebanese drug baron, both during the interwar period in, and afterwards. In 1952, he was described, and I quote, as the most powerful and notorious drug trafficker in Lebanon's young history. At an early stage of his career, he indeed may have run hashish trafficking operations from Lebanon to Egypt along the lines recounted in Bundle of Secrets. As a matter of fact, as I found out later, in 1947, Al-Khuri was imprisoned in Egypt for three years after attempting to smuggle 266 kilograms of hashish and 47 kilograms of opium on board of an airplane, which stopped over in Palestine for refueling. Anyway, it was under these circumstances that in 1936, Joseph Broadhurst, a senior officer at the Palestine police, recalled with uh, exasperation, and I quote, the immensity of the smuggling problem that faced the Palestine police and the so numerous, what he called smugglers of originality, who by virtue of having been born with great natural cunning, had played so many tricks on the police and gave us endless trouble. Broadhurst went on to say, and I quote again, by every manner of, the tri of trick, hashish is smuggled over the Syrian-Palestinian frontier through Palestine, across the burning Sinai Desert, over a lonely part of the Suez Canal, and up to Cairo. So let me move to the second uh, theme of my lecture, the, the emergence of hashish culture in Palestine, which, as you will see, is closely related to uh, my uh, previous discussion. And I'll start with Sebastian Conrad, who in his book, What is History?, suggests the follows, and I quote, the history of commodities traces particular items, most famously sugar in the classic study by Sidney Mintz, but also cotton, soy, porcelain, and glass, and I may add hashish as well, across distant geographies and across time. These are studies of interconnectedness that link sites of production and consumption in different locations and show how these commodities impacted individual households as well as larger groups and social formations. Accordingly, what I would like to argue now is that the novel links that developed between the sites of hashish production in Lebanon on the one hand, and the sites of hashish consumption in Egypt on the other led to a dramatic change in the leisure culture practices of Palestinian Arabs. While Palestinian Arabs, as I previously mentioned, were not known 
to be avid hashish con uh, consumers in the late Ottoman period, the emergence of Palestine as the largest hashish depot in the Levant during the interwar years led to a surge in hashish smoking, smoking among them. My sources provide ample evidence that by the early 1930s, hashish smoking spread throughout Palestine's urban centers of Jaffa, Haifa, Jerusalem, uh, Acre, Nablus, Tiberias, uh, uh, Ramallah, uh, Lidda, and even Tel Aviv, the first Hebrew city, and many persons could be seen wandering the streets of these towns utterly stoned. Venues of hashish consumption were primarily of two kinds, makeshift hashish dens, which the Hebrew and Arabic press of the time described as hashish smoking clubs and coffee houses. What went on inside these establishments? A contemporary Jewish observer described what transpired in uh, one such club, which was located in an Arab quarter of Haifa's lower city. And he describes it as follows. Various people were either sitting down or lying down. Others were smoking hookahs, right, water pipes, and uh, the rest were lying motionlessly, motionlessly as if dead. Their lips mumbled meaningless, meaningless broken words and syllables, their face glowing with silly smiles. Within two hours, all the guests were fast asleep. The only sounds were fleeting words and unintelligible roars coming out of the sleeping man's mouths. Uh, be that as it may, hashish dens were not the main, uh, main venues of hashish smoking in the interwar Palestine, like elsewhere in the Arab, Ottoman, uh, Turkish, and Iranian Middle East, coffee houses were. Now, this is not surprising. A Middle Eastern invention, coffee houses first appeared in the Ottoman Empire and in Safavid Iran in the 16th and 17th centuries, soon emerging, oops, sorry, soon emerging uh, as, uh, as urban venues where new kinds of sociability and new patterns of public conviviality uh, uh, came into play. From the perspective of drug history, one of the reasons why these institutions uh, reach such, such a paramount social position, I argue is that they became a point of convergence of consumable drugs such as coffee, tobacco, opium, and cannabis. The combination of all of these enabled coffee houses patrons to sip coffee leisurely, but also pursuing collective pleasure in ingesting opium and hashish and beginning in the 18th to 19th centuries, also smoking uh, each of them mixed with tobacco. Now, it is known in fact among historians of Palestine that coffee houses culture had expanded dramatically in the interwar years. It is my contention that this expansion may have led, may have been linked uh, to the emergence of Palestine as a major depot of hashish commodities in the Levant, as I discussed earlier. Indeed, it may not have been a coincidence that the rec recreational activities that were soon hosted in coffee houses in Palestine included, in addition to, uh, to small-scale gambling, the, the performance of music and prostitution, 
It also included the sale and consumption of tobacco and hashish. Now it is certain that hashish serving cafes were a thorn in the side of the British authorities in Palestine. And that is why cafe patrons and cafe owners were regularly arrested uh, uh, due to hashish smoking and or hashish possession. And why from the 1930s onward, the police uh, conducted repeated and coordinated raids on cafes in various towns at the same time. That these hashish smoking venues concern the British authorities can also be gleaned from the uh, dangerous uh, from the dangerous drugs ordinance issued by the government of Palestine in 1936. Article uh, 14 of the ordinance, which did not appear in the previous British ordinances of 1925, 1928, and 1932, was designed to contend with a situation previously not known, right, as it shows on the uh, on the upper uh, red, uh, right side of the slide, yeah, offenses in connection with premises used for sale or smoking of opium or hashish, or in other words, recreational hashish smoking in cafes and other spaces designated for the same illicit activity. Conspicuously missing from drug smoking activities were Palestine's Jews whose number had risen from 56,000 in the wake of World War I to around 650,000 towards the end of the mandate period. First, of course, there were Zionist values to be considered, as intoxication, to put it mildly, did not sit well with a movement valorizing the virtues of abstemious frontier pioneering and Hebrew labor. Now, augmenting Jewish aversion to hashish was fear of over-assimilation into, into the Orient. Now, I say over-assimilation because Zionist attitudes towards the Orient, as I'm sure we all know, were never free of tensions and contradictions. Alongside the rejection of the Orient, pre-1948 Zionists were attracted to it. For instance, uh, they were fascinated with the uh, image of the, of the Bedouin as noble warriors and sought to emulate them. And they contemplated the life of Arab peasants, Felahim, as window onto biblical times. In short, before 1948, many, many Zionists viewed the Orient not just as an enemy territory, but also as a utopian space of possibility uh, for Jewish renewal. The same goes uh, um, um, incidentally, uh, for more mundane concerns, such as culinary preferences, right? Uh, as anthropologist Daphne Hirsch has vividly demonstrated, Jewish Zionist settlers discovered hummus, the popular Levantine dip and spread in the late, uh, in the late mandate period and began to consume it because they believed it uh, to be part of a repertoire of Arab food uh, whose effect was the consolidation uh, of an authentic tie to the land. Moreover, uh, in, since the late 1950s, hummus was gradually nationalized by uh, Israeli Jews and its Arab identity suppressed with Jewish immigrants from the Middle East uh, uh, acting as intermediaries. However, for the Jews of Palestine, 
hashish smoking was a wholly different matter. It amounted to an extreme act of border crossing between Jews and Arabs, and one that would take them far too down the road of orientalization, thereby exposing Jewish bodies most perilously to the temptation of an alien space, virtually turning them into Arabs. By the way, in much of the same way that English opium smokers in the late 19th century were deemed as being orientalized, but I don't have time to go into that right now. Um, be that as it may, historian Ofri Ilani has recently shown that during the mandatory period, so-called contraction of sodomy by Jews, and particularly by European Zionists, was described as an especially severe symptom of ideological laxity and the harming effect of the Arab environment. I argue that perhaps second only to sodomy, hashish smoking in mandatory Palestine was seen as a form of backwardness and barbarism linked to the realities of living among Arabs in the Middle East. That is why such venues as hashish dens, coffee houses, and brothels, in which Arabs and Jews could commingle and assimilate while sharing a hashish-filled hookah, were construed as a national political threat. That these venues were also signaled out as uh, as disreputable places of sexual and homosexual encounters is not coincidental. Both represented an oriental vice not to be transgressed. To further dissuade Jews from joining Arabs to become hashish smokers, Zionist public discourse relied on interwar colonial knowledge with a view to asserting that cannabis was a specifically oriental substance, its special kinds of intoxication being racially compatible with the mentality of Arabs and theirs only. This knowledge, it is important to stress, arrived in Palestine from three main sites, as I show in my book. India and Egypt, where the British had contended with cannabis oriented cultures long before arriving in Palestine, and from the Geneva-based League of Nations, which was one of the, of the forums in which colonial knowledge about cannabis was produced and exchanged within and across imperial centers. Take, for example, Dr. Jules Bouquet, inspector of pharmacies in Tunis hospitals and a member of the subcommittee on cannabis, cannabis appointed by the League of Nations in 1934, who proclaimed, and I quote, repeated prohibitions from imams, edicts and penalties from the emirs and sultans, all were in vain. Hashish triumphed and triumphs still, for it is precisely owing to their special mentality that Muslims became and remain devotees of the drug. On another occasion, the same expert also asserted, and this is important, that cannabis for Orientals increased sexual arousal and caused violent frenzy, on the one hand, and indolence and manipulability on the other. He concluded by saying that Europeans in North Africa 
who have had the fancy to try hashish did not experience these particular effects because cannabis intoxication was, quote, a question of racial sensibility or a question of race receptiveness, right? Thereby racializing the substance. What I'd like to show you and very briefly is that interwar Zionist discourse reproduced these ideas and at the same time adapted them to local circumstances. A 1938 commentary in the daily newspaper Davar, the mouthpiece of mainstream Zionism's labor movement and the most popular Hebrew language newspaper in interwar Palestine should, should, demonstrate this, should demonstrate this point. The commentary was, the commentary was uh, published during the 1936-1939 Arab revolt in Palestine, which is rightly considered the most significant anti-colonial uh, insurgency in the Arab East during the interwar period. The writer's primary objective, however, uh, was to repudiate the revolt by reducing its causes and motivations to one overarching cause. And I quote, oriental intoxication or poisoning, which is carried on, which is carried on for generations and on a massive scale, massive scale by means of oriental drugs by which he meant hashish and opium. To substantiate this point, the writer begins by enumerating the effects of hashish intoxication, which, as you will see, echoes uh, the uh, arguments of Jules Bouquet of the, uh, of, of the League of Nations. First, the writer claims, hashish, and I quote, begets powerful erotic feelings, and generally speaking, it increases sexual drives and sexual activity. Second, as the writer goes on to say, hashish induces violent insanity. It begets angry behavior, which can easily reach brutal and fearless aggression. The hashish user, he claims, is easily given to boiling rage or homicide with remarkable cold heartedness. That is because hashish, quote, stuns his mind, weakens or destroys his recognition of reality, and naturalizes his natural and social inhibitions. By the way, compare this to the moral panic of reefer madness and killer weed in the US at the very same time, which demonstrates the global reverberations of these attitudes. So, let me, how much more time do I have, Yaakov? Oh, do I have some more time? You have plenty of time, please go oh, on. Oh, fantastic, okay, good. So I'll, I'll move on quickly to uh, the post-1948 era uh, and discuss Jewish attitudes uh, to hashish and, and the social history of hashish in the first two decades of the state of Israel. Now, what I would like to argue is that these attitudes that I've just uh, uh, described to you uh, in, 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 in the post-1948 era, represented a continuation of pre-1948 notions of the drug, but responding to new demographic and political realities. And when I say new demographic and political realities, I am specifically referring to the expulsion and flight of the Arab population of Palestine on the one hand, and the country's repopulation by Jews from the Middle East and North Africa 
collectively known as Mizrahim, on the other hand. Some of these Jews, not too many, I should add, used hashish in their countries of origin and had brought uh, the habit with them to Israel. Other first and second generation immigrants from Muslim countries were not hashish smokers, but had picked up on the habit in Israel, owing to their socio-economic and ethnic marginalization. Many of these immigrants were settled in transit camps, in Hebrew and singular, it's Ma'abara, which sprang up across the country, with some transforming into development towns in the 1960s. As their name implies, these settlements were originally perceived as temporary places of dwelling, yet many Jews remained there for much longer periods, uh, I would say even between one to seven years. They suffered from poor sanitary and uh, uh, hygiene conditions, uh, poverty uh, 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 and neglect, uh, as well as ill treatment and discrimination by the state authorities. So beset by these diversities, uh, transit camps soon evolved into centers of drug wheeling and dealing and substance abuse. And in this way, hashish became a Jewish problem where formerly it was considered largely an Arab one. It is crucial to stress that hashish smoking in Israel remained limited to no more than a few thousand members of the Mizrahi underclass and did not make inroads into the dominant Ashkenazi middle classes until after the 1967 war. Yet, there were plenty of moral entrepreneurs for whom hashish consuming Mizrahim endangered the very Western foundations of the Jewish state, bringing it to the brink of becoming a full-fledged Arab or Levantine space. The primary terms that expressed these fears were contagion and a plague, as though hashish smoking was a disease that might spread to the enlightened European, not to say white, sectors of Jewish society in Israel. These metaphors are reminiscent of older continental anxieties of reverse colonialism, which spoke of an insidious invasion of Orientals and Oriental drugs, disrupting metropolitan life by debilitating and immobilizing citizens. Consider, for example, the following ominous warning issued by a senior police officer in 1956. What we have here is a national peril, a terrible peril. If something is not done, to eliminate this terrible plague in 10 years time, Israel will become a second Egypt. Hashish smoking venues where hashish could be shared by uh, Mizrahi and Ashkenazi Jews on the one hand and between Jews and Arabs on the other were especially signaled out as a threat to the homogeneity come Eurocentricity of the national project. Now, that these venues were usually located in Israel's ethnically mixed towns, such as Jaffa, Haifa, Acre, Lod, um, and these towns are basically binational borderlands in which Arabs and Jews uh, live together, uh, that 
that, that these venues were actually located there heightened the threat of mixedness uh, issue, uh, issuing from them. Mainstream public discourse cast these hashish smoking uh, spaces into the realms of radical authority. Patrons of these venues were described as, and I quote from a collection of references, uh, they were described as worn out and filthy riffraff, the most revolting figures ever seen, a mixture of malignant diseases, degeneration, and the underworld, and a prey for bugs and lice. The interiors of these establishments were also said to be filthy, foul-smelling, uh, depressing, and in a state of utterly disrepair. And here again, a collection of, of, uh, of, of utterances uh, about, this, about, uh, about these places. Yes, Everything in this place is dirty and sticky. The furniture, the glasses, the cups, the thick hair, air hanging in space, or most of these cafes are very dirty. They are located in ancient ramshackle, one-story buildings, in quarters of tin shacks, in pitiable wooden shacks, in plasterless buildings whose entrance yawns before you, bringing to mind toothless old women. The stench is discernible in every corner. The smell of beasts manure is truly nauseating. Um, okay, briefly, turning the gaze to the voices of the Mizrahim themselves, and I don't have time to go into it, it is interesting to note that they oftentimes assimilated these negative derogatory notions of hashish and hashish smoking. A case in point, and again, I don't have time uh, to go into it right now, a case in point is novelist Shimon Bas. Now, and of course, I'm, I, I take it that most of you are, are familiar with him, so I, I, I will keep it short. Uh, for all of Balas's, uh, how should I put it, vehemently subversive Mizrahi uh, susceptibilities, oftentimes anti-Zionist in nature, his literary works, such as his, uh, his, his novel, The Transit, uh, the Transit Camp, Hama'abara, Right? His literary works uh, also testify to a remarkable, even wholesale, integration of Zionist orientalized, uh, racialized, and gendered conceptualizations of hashish and hashish edicts. The same goes, however, uh, for other Mizrahi novelists, such as Shlomo Kahlo, uh, Sami Mikhail, Mir Shochat, Mordechai Tabib, Eli Amir, uh, uh, Amnon uh, Shamosh, uh, to name but a few. So uh, I, I, I should limit myself to saying that this circumstance is consistent with other cases in the colonial and post-colonial worlds in which the indigenous middle classes have conceptualized hashish in negative terms in, in much of the same way as the recently uh, departed European colonizers had done. So I come to the conclusion. Um, global trends and the occupation of Palestine territories in, 19, in the 1967 war joined to uh, prompt uh, a significant expansion of hashish smoking among Israeli Jews that were previously immune to, uh, to the habit, thus uh, bringing down the ethnic, gender, and class boundaries that had kept hashish strictly an Arab 
or a Mizrahi, or a Mizrahi vice. This process, which was by no means linear, persisted through the 21st century. By the way, this circumstance prompted uh, a, a rather recent publication in, of an op-ed in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that crowned Israelis as a nation of stoners. Let me just give you a little piece uh, uh, from that op-ed. The op-ed was titled, What Really Unites Israel, Israel's Right, Left, and Center, and it argues as follows. A love of pot smoking is shared among all populations in Israel. Hilltop settler youth and Tel Aviv radicals, young and old, Knesset members and simple folk, city and country people, religious and secular, everyone loves pot. Marijuana and hashish are the largest common denominator in Israeli society. Despite the common ideals held by hippies, in Israel, it turns out that one can be a religious fanatic, a human rights trampling racist, or a war-mongering militarist, and will be incredibly, and still will be incredibly good at rolling joints. No problem, pot couldn't be any more common in Israel. There aren't enough lungs. So admittingly, uh, this description of Jewish Israel as a nation of stoners is surely an overstatement. But a 2017 survey conduct conducted by the Israel Anti-Drug Authority validates the general impression, backing it, backing it up with hard numbers. The survey found a dramatic surge in the adult uh, surge in the prevalence of uh, cannabis use by Israelis, Jews and non-Jews alike. 27% of the adult population reported using cannabis in the past year, in comparison to just under 9% in 2009. A comparison with surveys conducted in other countries shows that Israel is probably at the top of cannabis use by adult populations, with Iceland and the US lagging behind at 18% and 16% respectively. So, although the normalization of recreational cannabis use in Israel has been gaining steam in recent years, as old mythologies about the substance are losing their credibility, remnants of obsolete Oriental fantasies about the substance remain in reconfigured form. A blatant example of this is a short 33-second video clip prepared by the Israel Anti-Drug Authority in 2006, with which I will conclude. Designed to dissuade teenagers from using intoxicating drugs, particularly cannabis, and broadcast on Israel's main public television channel, the clip was produced in the style of the dilettante last and will testament videos by Muslim suicide bombers. It shows a teenage boy holding a bong as a deadly weapon, standing in front of an unsteady camera and reciting the following monologue. I, Omer Kendall, 
aged 16, of Ra'anana, bid goodbye today from my parents, Ronit and Shmuel, and from my sister, Karen, and I'm going to a party in Tel Aviv. There is only one way to be truly liberated, to get drunk, take drugs, and get really stoned. Don't cry, mom. I'm going to paradise. Now, it is easy to see in this short clip echoes of Orientalist fantasies about hashish taking Muslims, which were addressed in an early 21st century Islamophobic garb. At the time of the clip's broadcast, and let me remind you, that's 2006, so it's the final days of the Second Intifada, and um, at the height of President George W. Bush's global war on terror, the suicide bomber had in the US, uh, in Western Europe and in Israel, uh, become emblematic uh, of the so-called Islamic death culture. The clip thus, I argue, deliberately played on the strings of these anti-Muslim sentiments that were rampant in Israeli society at the time. At the same time, it drew upon the vocabulary of 19th and early 20th century images of cannabis, namely that hashish is an oriental substance used by uncivilized Muslim Arab zealots who champion a ritual of death rather than a ritual of life. Whatever the case may be, it appears that the Zionist nightmare of assimilation into the Levant, a nightmare that had haunted Jews in Palestine, Israel since the 1920s, had has materialized, at least to some extent, or at least to the extent that cannabis consumption is concerned. Thank you very much. Thank you, Haggai, Thank you, Haggai for, for this fascinating, fascinating presentation. Uh, 